I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Hey, Justine Paradise. Sam Evans-Brown. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And Justine, what would you do if I told you that you have to stop using fossil fuels to heat the apartment that you live in, like, tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) What would I do? Gosh, well, maybe I would try to, like, set up some... I have a lot of sun in my apartment, so maybe I would try to create some sort of greenhouse effect um, <laughs> in my place, or like a, like a pump, like set up like hot water like pools on my rooftop to try to like pump through my house. It would be elaborate. Yeah, and so this is this whole thing, right? Like landlords often don't pay the heat; they don't have much of an incentive to do this kind of thing. Renters can't, like even if they wanted to. Even if you own the building, it's hard. Like, we've experienced this twice now with homes that we've owned. The construction industry has its own way of doing things, and they don't like doing things differently. And so if you decide you want to, to like, radically invest in the efficiency of a home, a lot of times you have to, like, convince contractors to do things that they just think are weird. Right. We just rely on, like, basically constant fires burning to keep all of our poorly insulated homes. So this all is why I really like the story that we're going to bring to our audience today that we're sharing with you listeners. It's an episode of the Gimlet podcast, How to Save a Planet. And rather than belabor things anymore, here it comes. Cool. Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. And this is the podcast where we talk about what we need to do to address the climate crisis and how we're going to make those things happen. 
We spend billions and billions of dollars heating up buildings in New York City just for the heat to float out of open windows. This is Donnell Baird. He's our guest on today's show, and he's thought a lot about this problem, the problem of buildings, specifically how much energy we waste in the way we heat and cool and use power in our buildings. And this is not just a problem of cost. This is a giant problem for global warming. And to give you a sense of how big a problem, around 30 percent of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions can be traced back to buildings. So that's if you include direct emissions, like the fossil fuels used to heat the buildings, plus all the indirect emissions, like generating the power we use in those buildings to, you know, turn on the lights, run the air conditioner, et cetera. 30% is a lot. For context, it's more than the entire transportation sector. Yeah. So every single internal combustion engine, car, or truck on the road today in America burning gas and sending greenhouse gases out their tailpipes Think of all of them. Think of every rush hour in every city. They are causing less warming than our houses and offices and buildings. And that's the problem Donnell wants to solve. So we spoke with him about how he plans to get that done. And you know, Alex, we talked to lots of different people on this show who are tackling climate solutions in all these different ways, from social campaigns to scientific breakthroughs to political and policy solutions to businesses. And what's interesting about Donnell is that in his search for solutions, he's covered a lot of ground. He started as a community organizer. He did a stint in politics and eventually ended up running a tech startup called Block Power with backing from Silicon Valley. And Block Power, it has this very un-Silicon Valley sounding mission to renovate buildings, especially buildings in poor neighborhoods, and make them way more energy efficient. And in the process to create a ton of good jobs for people in low-income communities of color. And Donnell says he can do all of that while making a ton of money. Super easy. No big deal. Yeah. In fact, he says he needs to make a ton of money. Otherwise, it won't work. Turning all of these fossil-fueled and leaky buildings into green buildings is a really tough nut to crack at scale. And lots of people are working on different parts of this problem from different angles. There are policy incentives, engineering, financing, new technologies. And Donnell is focused on one pretty big piece of this puzzle. How do you get the private sector to come in in a big way and put up enough money to allow us to green all the buildings in the country at the speed we need that transition to happen? Essentially, we need to break buildings of their fossil fuel addictions, ASAP. And today, we're going to hear a story how he got to where he is now by drawing on lessons from some unexpected sources. From the civil rights movement, Wall Street, the Obama administration, this is the story of how Donnell failed the first time he tried, and then how his thinking changed dramatically over the last decade. So the interview we're bringing you today, Alex did without me. (laughs) It wasn't on purpose. You know, well, sometimes you know, you're busy. Sometimes I do things besides this podcast. Yep. Um, so you won't hear my voice asking Donnell questions, but we'll be pausing the interview every once in a while to connect the dots. And, you know, I was trying to channel you as I talked to Donnell, so hopefully I did an okay job. I will rate you at the end. Okay, good. Without a curve. <laughs> <laughs> with, of course, without a curve. So I started my conversation with Donnell by asking what made him want to address this issue of unsafe and inefficient buildings in the first place. Mm-hmm. And Donnell told me that his concern about all this stuff, it's personal, and it starts all the way back in his childhood. So I grew up fairly low income. My parents were immigrants. 
and they had to start over from scratch when they moved from South America. And um, we didn't have like heat in our building. We didn't have a functioning boiler heating system. And so we used to heat our apartment with the oven. We had a one bedroom apartment. It didn't have a bathroom inside of it. And the oven, obviously, was pretty dangerous if you have children around. Not only is there carbon monoxide, but of course, it's always hot and a kid can walk by, particularly in the dark and, you know, right. burn themselves pretty badly. So there's a strict set of protocols. So pretty early on, I was introduced to this idea of like the relationship between energy in urban buildings and fossil fuel usage and health. You said there was a system of protocols in the house. Was that around the oven? Like you're- Yeah, around the oven. One protocol was even as young kids, we had to check the windows to make sure that they were open. My dad sometimes worked nights. My mom was cleaning bedpans, was in and out. So we were trained like, okay, before you go to bed, cousins watching you, aunties watching you, whatever, make sure that the windows open to release carbon monoxide. So we would do that check. So that was one protocol. The other is once we were all in the bedroom at night, um, and the door was shut, we weren't allowed out, even to use the bathroom, because again, it was down the hall, past the oven, and so our parents didn't want us as children walking around, and so they they put a potty in the corner of the room for us to to, to f- fulfill our ablutions in the wow. potty. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that you don't think about when you have a, a live, hot stove uh, heating your apartment, but yeah, you don't want young kids walking around yeah. uh, unsupervised. And so everybody's got to stay in the room and do what you got to wow. do until the door opens in the morning. How much of this was where, where you were at the time you were growing up? Was it something your parents talked about? Like, oh crap, like this sucks. We have to heat our home with the stove. Or was it like something that you were aware of? Like, it, it, Yeah, it was, you know, and, and you know why? It's because back in my parents' country in Guyana and South America, mm-hmm. my dad was a mechanical engineer. He was trained here at Howard University, then went back home. And he actually managed, he was like an executive that managed the country's like bauxite mining industry. Uh-huh. And and so bauxite is this chemical that you mine and it, it, it goes into aluminum, aluminum right? right? So yeah. Reynolds Wrap mm-hmm. was like the biggest yeah. customer, blah, blah, blah. And he managed that whole mining operation. And I think that anybody who like lives near mines, there's like the toxicity that comes out of the mines and all of the different processes of the mm-hmm. stuff that you pull out of the mines. And actually my mom, unfortunately, had lost six pregnancies before me. So she'd had like six miscarriages wow. and my parents attributed her pregnancies and the difficulties with the toxic environment like around the mines right. um, in the industry that my dad was managing and so for us this thing of environmental impact right environmental mm-hmm. health um was pretty top of mind for my parents and so it was something that we paid a lot of attention to as a family right. how healthy or unhe- unhealthy our surroundings were right and i think for a lot of poor people because by definition, if you're poor, like you cannot afford to like move away from environmentally dangerous items. Mm-hmm. Like for a lot of people in public health and environmental stuff is tied together. And so there's a link between poverty and health and environmental justice. Right. And, you know, I added this link between poverty and health and environmental justice. It's something we've talked about on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. And Donnell said that the awareness, it just stayed with him from childhood. Yeah, as Donnell shared with you, his family eventually left Brooklyn for Atlanta, where he attended this elite, mostly white private high school. And after that, he went on to college at Duke. And he says that as a high school and college student, he was really focused on racial equality. He worshipped the activists of the civil rights movement. 
in particular the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he wanted to bring opportunity back to neighborhoods like the one where he'd lived as a kid. And then in college, a good friend made him take a class on climate change. We call that a great friend. (laughs) (laughs) And soon after that, he saw Al Gore's documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he says he started to see climate change as a crucial part of that same fight for justice. I mean, for me, that was when climate went to the very top of the list, right? Where it was like, I do want to create jobs and I do want to bring about racial justice as best I can, but none of it will matter, right? Like all of it will burn unless we deal with climate. And so he decided to devote his life to fixing these intersecting problems. After college, he got a job as a community organizer back in Brooklyn, in Brownsville. Which is a really tough neighborhood with super high unemployment. I wanted to use community organizing tactics Mm -hmm. from the Black Civil Rights Movement and apply them to creating jobs and apply them to creating jobs that reduced fossil fuels. He spent a couple of years as an organizer trying to do just that with, admittedly, he says, mixed results. And then he went to work for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. I joined the campaign and became a voter contact director um, for 18 months. And I went through eight states and I got to see different parts of the country, including the fact that the patterns of like old crappy heating systems in the buildings where I grew up with, same problem in Detroit, same problem in Cleveland, same problem in Greenwood, Mississippi, same problem in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was able to see that that pattern wasn't just like my neighborhood where I grew up. It was like all of the cities, most of the buildings, old antiquated fossil fuel systems. When Obama was elected, Donnell ended up working on a program that was part of, you know, remember that big economic stimulus package right after the financial crisis? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was like billions and billions of dollars to all these different parts of the economy. Mm -hmm. And some of those billions were set aside to help make buildings greener and more energy efficient, which Donnell saw as a way to do exactly what he had been always hoping to do, to create jobs and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. I worked for a coalition of labor unions, construction unions, Mm -hmm. who had $90 billion of pension funds that they had specifically dedicated to co-invest with Obama and Biden's $7 billion of stimulus funding, which they wanted to invest in green buildings. And so my assignment was to figure out to take these tens of billion dollars of union pensions, invest them in green municipal bonds, then train and hire construction workers from labor unions to do the work and go building to building, installing green energy equipment all over the country. And that was going to reduce the unemployment rate from 8%. And that was the plan. That is a beautiful plan, by the way. Just Because this is the middle of like the the Great Recession, right? Like this is just sort of like some of the hardest hit trades were, of course, construction trades. And so you've got like labor unions, government coming together, Yep. well-funded, yep. $7 billion? Yep, $7 billion of government money and $90 billion of potential private sector capital. That's right. Right. Yeah, I mean, did it work? No, I mean, I'm a, I'm a hyper-capitalist tech executive, right? So <laughs> <laughs> none of it worked. <laughs> not, not the community organizing stuff. Uh, in my view, not the Obama stuff. God bless him. I love him. Not the policy stuff, not the political organizing. None of it worked. And so that is why I'm a venture-backed technology executive, right? Um, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, some, of the, I'm sure some of the people in the Obama policy <laughs> shop will cringe when they hear this. But 
The problem was it's actually ridiculously hard to green buildings, to go building to building and green buildings. When was the moment of like, this is never going to work? <laughs> You're really pulling it out of me. Okay, right. <laughs> so, so Mayor Adrian Fenty was the mayor of D.C. Uh-huh. So we went to meet with Mayor Fenty and asked him to invest in training and hiring ex-offenders who lived in low-income D.C. neighborhoods in Anacostia, Southeast D.C. We're going to train and hire them to do green building upgrades of buildings across D.C. Got it. And Mayor Adrian Fenty said, absolutely, let's do it. Came out to a church. There were a thousand people in the audience. Mm -hmm. So we were thrilled. We went out and rapidly signed up 200 buildings to participate in this project. So, so every building is going to get a budget of like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars. We're going to give you know five, ten thousand dollars to the construction crew to go in and install equipment. The rest of the money is to pay for the equipment that's being installed and for the removal of the old fossil fuel equipment, right? Okay. And that's going to be a loan to the building owner, and they're going to be able to easily repay that loan because the clean energy equipment it's new, it's more efficient. It's going to reduce their energy costs, the amount that they're sending to the utility bill every month. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to take your savings from your utility bill and use it to repay your loan. Got it. That's how it's supposed to work. And essentially, it's sort of like taking taking a, an inefficient 100-year-old boiler or whatever's in the building and replacing it with a super efficient something else, a heat pump exactly. or something? Yeah, exactly. yeah. And then putting in some... Uh, Nest thermostat and... Right. Yeah organic insulation, LED lights, you're just going to consume a lot less energy. And I think today when we talk about it, we want to turn a building into a Tesla. Like yeah. Tesla's taking the gas guzzling engine out of the auto. Yeah. We want to take all that fossil fuel and gas stuff out of the buildings. We want it to be all electric, smart, healthy, clean, green. That's what right. we're trying to do with the building. And we want to save you money while we're doing it, right? So right. that was the idea that we were pioneering at that time. But the costs were like double or triple what they needed to be. And, and why Why was that? Lots of the buildings had carbon monoxide. They had lead. They had asbestos. They had all of this stuff that made it really, really difficult in each and every building. So that was the first problem. And then the second giant problem was the way this industry works is you have to pay an engineer before the project starts to come in and do an assessment. And so <laughs> they'll... <laughs> There's this thing called a smoke pen, for example. So uh-huh. you hit a button and it releases a plume of smoke. And uh-huh. then the engineer will like watch which way the smoke blows in order to figure out where the draft is, right? And then you're supposed to make a recommendation. Hey, I think this building needs new energy efficiency equipment because the smoke is blowing this way and that way. And that assessment is expensive. So something like 60% of the buildings instead of costing like $25,000 to install clean energy equipment, and then ended up costing double. So now the math doesn't work, right? Got it. This was key. The whole point, remember, was that bankers were supposed to loan building owners the money, and then the building owners were supposed to pay that money back over time. But the whole model only works if the payments that building owners are making on the loans are less than they'd have paid in energy costs. But there's a line where the cost to renovate the building is more expensive than the building's existing energy bill. And Donnell just couldn't find a way to get it under that line. 
When you added it all up, the cost of that assessment, the inevitable and expensive surprises that come when you start poking holes in old buildings, all of it added up to too much money per building. The costs of the renovation would overwhelm the savings. So what happened to the program? You say it was it was not a success. Like, did the money get spent and spent poorly? Did it not get spent? The money was spent. The vast majority of it was spent well. What we did was we created a bunch of jobs for people. We employed them. They did good work until the six and a half billion dollars ran out, right? Mm. But we were not then able to figure out how to take that experience and then bring in the $90 billion of private sector capital to expand the program and keep it going. Now you got to start to lay people off because we haven't figured out how to leverage and bring in the $90 billion to keep stuff going across the country. That's the leap that we weren't able to make. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You didn't make the leap from sort of like... Public, Public subsidy to privately financed industry. How'd you feel about that at the time? I was pretty demoralized. I mean, I think the promise of green jobs, you know, this idea of you you can create economic opportunity in the communities that I come from, that I care about, like this, this is what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking that, you know, for, and I'm a community organizer, like I don't understand business at this time. Right. Right. That there's like business reasons that the private sector can't figure out how to keep this going. And now we got to, we trained and hired people in DC and we got to look them in the eye and lay some of them off because there's no more money from the stimulus. Mm -hmm. Um, That was really difficult. And that did happen all over the country. And that was, that was demoralizing. Yeah. So what did you decide to do next? I decided to go to business school you know, we'd run smack dab into this buzzsaw of these business problems of unit economics on a building-by-building basis. I didn't even know what unit economics were. I didn't know what revenue was. I didn't know what stock was. And so I knew that if I wanted to pursue this dream that I'd had since college of we're going to train and hire people of color to green their cities where they live and their buildings where their families live, I knew I was, you know, I was either going to have to go do something else or go to B-school. Right. So I went to B-School. What that was like for Donnell, just how different business school was from anything he'd experienced before, and how it gave him the idea for a business model he thinks has a real shot at helping to save the planet. That's coming up after the break. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast. That's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back. This is Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. And today we are sharing with you all an episode of the Gimlet podcast, How to Save a Planet, in which they spoke to community organizer turned startup founder, Danelle Baird, about his idea for how to attract big money to the problem of energy efficiency. When we left off, Danelle had just started business school, which he really didn't like that much in the beginning. First year was horrible. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Wait, why did you say it was horrible? <laughs> <laughs> I remember we read a case study about this pharmaceutical company, uh, Eli Lilly, uh-huh. and it was like, Eli Lilly has invented this drug, but they're charging people a lot of money for it who can't afford it. What should Eli Lilly do? And as a community <laughs> organizer, I'm like, well, you should print the drugs and give, give them to people so they don't die, right? But <laughs> fail. That's not the right answer, Alex. It turns out. That answer gets you ridiculed in the halls of an Ivy League business school, it turns out, Alex. Wow. So, That's not I, the right answer. <laughs> it's not the right answer. So for me, it was really jarring to have my frameworks, which were all about, you know, social equality and justice and this set of like values mm-hmm. be really challenged by this idea of profit and like everything you do needs to have as its primary consideration how are you going to generate net in- income from this right transaction that was tough for me it's it's so funny because you know i i started a business also um after mm-hmm. essentially you know like spending my whole life in nonprofits. um and and thinking of profit as like dirty, like, you know, oh, that's like, you know, all they care about is profit. Mm-hmm. And then realizing like, yeah, sure. I mean, you can take profit and just like invest it in Hummers and swimming pools and whatever. But also profit is what allows you to like invest in making more of the thing you want to do or hiring more people right. or doing all these other things. And so like profit itself isn't a dirty word. That's right. And like, it, actually, it's how you use it that's important. So anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, it was a long, difficult journey for me. I mean, I'm with you now, right? I mean, like, we have to make a ton of profit. We are trying to build a $10 billion company. And that is what is going to allow us to train and hire all the people that we want to. And that is what is going to allow us to reduce greenhouse gases and save the planet. Right. Billions of dollars of profit, period, right. end of story. That's the system we're in. That's the game we're playing. We intend to excel at it. Yeah, and you know what the other thing that I was, like, if you, if you boil down, like, what profit does is it allows you to solve the problem that you had with the uh, the Obama program, which is sort of like, once the money's gone, it, it's over. That's right. And like what profit allows you to do is make something sustainable. Keep it going. Yeah. Make it sustainable. And you need the sustainability in order to get to scale, uh, to reduce greenhouse gases and save the planet. Now, that doesn't mean that profit is the end-all, be-all. And that doesn't mean that profit of your shareholders, this idea from the 1970s that's taken off as hyper-capitalism, that doesn't mean that that's the right idea either. But right. so I do think that there's this opportunity to kind of 
for our generation to continue to rethink and reinvent uh, capitalism and what its ultimate aims are so that while we're making profit, we're thinking of these other kinds of considerations. And if we don't figure out how to incorporate climate into it, I mean, we're, you know, we're in real trouble. So you go to business school, you've had these two experiences of sort of like trying to do this thing um, that were not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, how did you launch the latest venture? Talk to me about Block Power. How did it come about? And like, what was the, what was the goal in the very beginning? Well, part of it, I mean, part of it for me was this experience of the Obama administration. And, you know, we had 60 votes in the Senate. We had the White House. We had the Congress. And we're not able or did not pass comprehensive climate legislation. And so the part of me that still believed that there is going to be a comprehensive policy uh, solution to climate, uh, that part of me died. (laughs) 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 So what I was left with was capitalism. Okay, time out. I just (laughs) absolutely need to interject here briefly and say that while I totally feel what Donnell is saying, neither this podcast nor I have given up on policy as a key part of our climate solutions. Right, of course. And you you are on record as saying policy is your love language. This is a fact. And I don't even think that Donnell, he's not giving up on policy either, but he was saying like this big, bold government plan, like he was watching that not happen despite the fact that all three branches of government were in the hands of the party that claimed to want action on this thing. Yeah, I get that frustration for sure. And then he's like, well, I don't want to sit around and wait for that to happen. I'm going to try to start on something of my own. And, and I get that. Like, right, I think just as like there isn't really a, a world where government isn't part of the solution to climate change, there's also not a world where the private sector isn't a part of the solution too, right? Sure. And ideally, they work together, right? Yeah. For example, cities like New York now have policies that require building owners to improve efficiency and reduce emissions. And policies like that can actually play a big role in creating the markets for businesses like Donnell's. We're to agree to agree. <laughs> Anyway, Donnell says that it was at business school that he came up with this idea of block power. We had the chairman of a solar company, I won't say which one, come into uh, one of my B-school classes and talk to us about this beautiful business model that they had for expanding solar across America. And after class, I walked up and said, look, man, you know, I was a community organizer. I got a bunch of churches and low-income apartment buildings back in Brownsville that I have close relationships with, I know the boilers are jacked up and I know they could use solar. Can you help me bring solar to these communities? He was like, absolutely not. My lenders would kill me. My board would kill me. There's no way that this low-income community would qualify for the lending and financing criteria. And so I knew that I was going to have to start my own organization if what I wanted to do was to bring solar back to Brownsville, right? My business school professors were very generous with me as I was working on this problem. How do we get solar back to Brownsville? And they're like, the only way to do it is you're going to have to invent a new financial product. It's like, you know, like how Isaac Newton, he was like, I know that there are laws of physics that I need to learn. But before I even learn the laws of physics, I have to invent calculus (laughs) to explain it. (laughs) That's sort of like what it sounds like. You're just like, I know that, so I know there's a business model, but even before I can even do the business model, I have to invent a, a sort of a financial sector to finance it. And that's why we have to build block power. And Danielle says that in business school, he got an introduction to an executive at a big bank who gave him an idea of what kind of financial product he could use. 
and I was talking to him about, hey, I want to get solar panels in a brownsville. He was like, look, man, I think that you should study the subprime mortgage crisis. And I was like, what? You mean the thing that just blew up the global economy? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget about that part. Like, just forget about the global devastation and all that stuff. Put that to the side. Put that on the shelf. If you look at the underlying structure of the financial tools that we use, I think you can apply it. I probably shouldn't even be saying this. I think you can apply it <laughs> to bringing solar to Brownsville in these communities that you care about. Okay, so Ayanna. Yeah, Alex. You know how like if you're like ever at a wedding and like your favorite song comes on and you're like, oh, yes. You're like, I have, I have just the dance moves for this moment. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that feeling. So... This was sort of the equivalent, you know, when Donnell brought up the idea that he needed a new financial product and that it was based on this thing called a mortgage-backed security. You were like, this is my time to shine. This is my jam. That is my podcast equivalent of never going to get it by En Vogue. So um, (laughs) so, I want to get married now only so that you can dance to that uh, song at my (laughs) wedding. (laughs) Never going to get it. Never going to get it. You're Uh, hired. I'm singing by myself here. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway you were like mortgage-backed securities let's go mortgage-backed securities let's go uh and the reason that this is my jam is because like i did a whole series of stories about this at planet money and back, this American back Life, on the other podcast with the word planet in the title the other podcast exactly the other one with planet in the title and so i just want to talk about this idea that was proposed to danelle and how actually it's this really cool thing so yeah because when i was listening to this i was like this seems like a terrible idea from what little I know about how that whole thing went down. Right, exactly. Like, why would you take the financial instrument that nearly brought down the global economy and now use it for your startup? Yes, it begs exactly that question. The thing that brought down the global economy was this excess that was piled on top of this very, very basic thing that had existed for decades before and continues to exist to this day and is the reason that like many, many people can get a mortgage and the mortgage is cheaper than it probably would otherwise be. And it's this thing called a mortgage-backed security. And like the basic idea of it is actually sort of genius. And I think it's really important to sort of understand it because like actually the application to what Donnell is trying to do is really, really interesting. All right, break it down. So here's the issue, right? Like, so if you think about a mortgage, it is a loan to a person the bank makes. The bank makes it not to be nice, but the bank makes it because when the person pays the bank back, they'll pay it back with interest. So the person gets a big pile of money to buy a house that they can pay back over time. The bank gets paid back over time more than they originally loaned the person. So it's essentially a win-win. The problem is people like old buildings are all different. And once you poke at them, they have all sorts of problems. And sometimes (laughs) they don't pay back their mortgages. (laughs) And so when it's just an individual bank making an individual loan, they have to be more careful and they have to charge more because they're not sure exactly are people going to pay them back or not. Mm -hmm. The mortgage-backed security was this solution to this problem. It allowed big, huge financial institutions that would never want to mess with like an individual person and their individual mortgage. And it allowed those big financial institutions to put their money and make it available to people who wanted mortgages. And the way it did that is it took all these individual mortgages and put them all together. And so instead of one person paying back, you had hundreds or 150 or thousands of people paying back their mortgage. You had all this money from all these mortgage payments coming together. 
because there were so many of them, it was a much safer investment for them because like... So if like I default on my mortgage, it doesn't matter as much because I'm in like a big group of people who are mostly paying them back. Yes, exactly. And so you would. By the get way, I'm a very safe because, investment. Like, Whoever is listening, like, don't worry, I always pay my bills on time. <laughs> <laughs> and so this invention of the mortgage-backed security, it changed the way everybody buys a house. And now a lot of people, almost everybody who gets a mortgage in America today, is getting it through this structured instrument. And and it's almost positive that your mortgage rate is lower than it otherwise would have been without the invention of this structured financing vehicle. It's basically, so it sounds like you're basically, yeah. it's a tool for spreading the risk and minimizing the risk to investors. Exactly. And therefore making investors more likely to make their money available to you if you want to buy a house. But where's so, the part where all this totally fell apart and the shit hit the fan? Well, so the part with that is that like people started to do arcane financial wizardry on top of this basic idea and they started including mortgages that shouldn't be included in the pools and it sort of all went went crazy and regulations got lax and there was greedy people who took advantage of the system. But like the basic underlying fact of it, it's like the banking sector went crazy, but we don't need to get rid of banks. The mortgage sector went crazy, but we don't need to get rid of this basic thing, the mortgage-backed security. Okay, so in the context of block power, yes. you've got millions of buildings in America, most of which need to be renovated. They need to be updated and retrofit to make them more energy efficient. Yeah. And so right. each building has all of these uniquenesses and weirdnesses, and you never know what's going to happen when you start opening up walls. And if you can kind of smooth that risk over millions of buildings. Yeah, you can make it more attractive for like institutions with tons of money to make these loans, right? It's just like with the mortgage-backed security, how you packaged all these mortgages together to help spread the risk of individual defaults. With this new financial product that Donnell was helping develop, you can do the same thing for old buildings. Help spread the risk that any individual building will default. Uh, That actually makes sense to me. Thanks for putting on your planet money hat for a second there. I'm super glad it still fits. That's handy. Once you put the Planet Money hat on, you can never take it off. (laughs) And so when Donnell and I were talking about this, I said to him, you're doing essentially the mortgage-backed security, but for renovations of old buildings. We are doing exactly that for buildings in Brownsville, where I was a community organizer, exactly that. That is crazy. So you invented basically a financial product that allows big money to come in and fund these equipment purchases that will make the buildings work better. Yes. And then it sounds like there was this other problem, which was sort of like, you know, how each building requires its own specialized inspection process, right? Yes. We won this contract. Uh, It was $2 million of cash from the Obama administration. And we had to match uh, $2 million of private sector capital in order to qualify to receive the money Uh from the federal government. So we, we went out to Silicon Valley and uh-huh. we had to raise like a million bucks in order to qualify for this contract and got introduced to Ben Horowitz and Andreessen Horowitz and Mitch Kapoor at Kapoor Capital. Okay. And Andreessen Horowitz, just to, just to like, that's one of the biggest venture capital firms, most, most storied, sort of very, very fancy VC firm out in California. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. They invested in like Facebook and Twitter and Airbnb and Lyft right. and, you know, they're, they're big time. They're brilliant. And so we're sitting there looking at the business model and he goes, well, what are you going to do about these guys, these inspectors with the smoke signals? 
And I go, you know, I don't really know. I think I think we're just going to have to pay him or start a nonprofit that's going to do it at a lower cost or whatever. And he goes, I think you can build software to to kind of simulate the work that these guys do. And if and if if you can build that software, wouldn't that streamline this whole thing? Right. Right. And Ben and Mitch uh, decided that they were going to invest in block power with this idea that we could build software to figure out how to how to reduce the costs of these inspections. And the way that we do that is by building a digital model of all of the buildings. So we've built it for 30,000 buildings across New York City Mm -hmm. and we simulate the physics of different kinds of equipment inside that building and come up with a range of scenarios of what's possible in terms of if you invest, these are the expected financial returns. This is the expected greenhouse gas emissions. The third item output is the expected uh, annual energy savings, right? And so we built this application that can simulate all of these outcomes Got it. And you did that just by sort of like the plans that are on file at the Department of Buildings? Is that like how you're able to do that? Yeah, we aggregate all the files from the Department of Buildings. We aggregate all of the shapes of the buildings, the age of the buildings, the use cases, all the plumbing records. When a plumber comes out to renovate your home or replace your boiler, they fill out a permit that goes on file at the Department of Buildings. We scrape that, we dumped it in a data warehouse. Every time someone calls because their heat, their apartment's too hot or too cold in the winter, uh, we have a list of all those complaints by address in New York City. Oh, my God. Um, So we got every record we could. And so we created this giant database of all the buildings in New York City, all of the owners, all of the people who live there, and we run simulations uh, on those buildings. I mean, it's, it's, some of it's not that we're so brilliant. It's also that in 10 years, there's been tremendous changes in software, right? The cost of cloud computing has collapsed. Right. Um, the cost of machine learning and doing pattern recognition and statistical analysis of large data sets, all that stuff has collapsed. Like any college kid coming out of computer science class is going to do some basic machine learning these days, mm-hmm. right? So these are basic tools now that were extraordinarily expensive 10 years ago, and there was not sufficient data to solve for it. And then last, the cost of low-cost sensors that can take temperature, humidity, pressure readings, air quality readings. You can just get us some sensors from Home Depot for five bucks, or we actually send an electrician to people's houses. We put sensors where the smoke signals would go. And now we have granular, precise 15-second interval data coming into our software platform to do our scenario analysis. So a a lot of it is a collapse in the cost of different kinds of computing. Uh And that that allows us to solve this in a different way than we could, you know, five years ago, much less 10 years ago. So, Ayanna, Danelle and Black Power now think they have solved this problem, the one that stymied the Obama administration project he'd been working on. This is the problem of how do you bring big piles of investment money into the sector that's all about greening buildings? Exactly, that problem. Donnell says that Black Power has dropped the cost of figuring out what the building needs, and they've also dropped the cost of borrowing the money to provide what the building needs. And all that means that Black Power can now make it so that buildings that previously could not afford to do these renovations can now afford to do them. And so one example of all this in action that Danelle told me about 
is this big church just north of New York City. So Father Gawain Luz Church at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church in White Plains is a great example. It's an Episcopal church, giant sanctuary. It's got uh, an office, a small office building adjacent to the church. And then next to that, they have a small school. Then he has a rectory where the pastor himself lives. And so he got these four buildings and they had an oil burning boiler to heat the church. And they didn't have air conditioning in the summer, which was a huge problem for them because no bride is going to agree to get married in a church sanctuary that's super duper hot and super right. duper sweaty. So uh-huh. That's a big time problem if you're operating a church, right? It was a big uh-huh. time problem for him. And so we had worked with him a few years ago and he's a member of the community organizing group that I used to work with. So he contacted us and said, yo, my boiler is about to go out. We need to replace it. What do you guys recommend? They're telling me to put in a gas system. I said, no, 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 no. I, th- I think we can move you 100% off of fossil fuels and we think we can finance it and make this work. We're going to make this work for you. And so uh-huh. we decommissioned the old oil boiler. So it's no longer the primary source of heat. We put in these fancy pants systems from Japan called VRF heat pumps. And so depending on the season, this one piece of technology can reverse itself and provide hot air or cold air. And it runs entirely off of electricity and it uses less energy than your oil heating system. And so no fossil fuels in all four buildings and they've reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 70%. Wow. How much did that project cost to do that to, for his church? How much How much did that cost total? Cost about half a million dollars. Okay. And- Upfront. That half a million dollars, he would not have been able to afford him, himself, right? So you're saying you can, because you have this like mortgage-backed security of like building renovation, yep. you, you have gotten banks to sort of invest like $5 million into this vehicle, basically. So you've got yeah. the money- so you can just like sort of upfront the cost for Gawain and then he has to pay you guys back a little bit of time each month. And then that's, that's right. how your investors get paid back. That's but right. it's less than he would be paying normally under his old fossil fuel model. Correct. Right. hundred percent correct. So he's paying less. He's paying less. He's saving money. That's crazy. That's where we think we got to be in order to get the 30% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions down. Yeah. We think... Yes, we have to talk to people about saving the planet. Yes, we have to talk to people about we want their buildings to be healthy so they're not breathing in you know, mm-hmm. toxins or carbon monoxide. But we also got to save people money. And after we green the building, the building is 11% more valuable and it's more profitable. That's amazing. Right? And this is the kind of thing that we can do in buildings now that we couldn't do three, four years ago. So now the question is, how do we scale this up? And that's why it's so important that we created this, you know, structured financing vehicle that allows institutional investors of different kinds. So, you know, now uh, Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan or the New York state government, 
you know, can invest capital to, to do this, not just in Father Gallien's building, but all the buildings in White Plains and all the buildings in the Bronx. And so that's so interesting. And, and you're able to like do all this work, all this like sort of like very specialized work on this very specialized building because you have the you have the money to do that through this like financing vehicle that you created. And we have the software and that is what allows us to actually kind of put the whole thing together. So our belief is if if you show up and you try to do the engineering without financing, it's not going to work. If you show up and you try to do the financing without the appropriate engineering software, it's also not going to work. You're not going to generate a high enough volume of projects to deploy enough capital to keep your bankers happy. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, Ayana. Yes, Alex. That is the vision. (laughs) That is the business model. That is block power. Sounds pretty good. So listeners might be wondering, like I certainly was, is it actually working? Where do things stand now? So far, Block Power has completed projects in about 1,000 buildings, most of them in New York City. And we should mention one of those projects in particular. Remember how Donnell said he started out trying to bring solar power to Brownsville, Brooklyn, where he'd been a community organizer? Well, they did it. Block Power was part of a project installing solar panels on about 200 houses in Brownsville. But, you know, reality check. 200 houses in Brownsville, even a thousand buildings that they've done. It's great, but there are tens of millions of buildings that exist in the United States. Yeah, there's a little bit more work to do. Yes. And Donnell's company and others like it would have to scale a lot to actually green all of those buildings. Mm-hmm. And Donnell says that right now he hopes that block power and the industry in general is at an inflection point. And Block Power's goal is to accelerate their work and complete 600 to 700 projects next year and multiples more in the years following. And to get that done will require something I hadn't really thought about before, but actually makes perfect sense. You have to hire a sales team to essentially go out door to door and explain this to individual building owners. Sales teams are so important. (laughs) (laughs) You need those people who are like, hey, we can save you money by installing this fancy equipment and these new lights, and you should let us start poking around the basement and the attic of your buildings. Right. It's one thing to create this good deal, but it's another to convince people that the good deal is real, and that's what you need your sales team for. And actually, Donnell's big dream this year is to convince an entire city to commit to greening every single building in its limits. Where we're headed next and what we're working on is we're trying to get the city of Philadelphia, the borough of the Bronx, or maybe Oakland or Milwaukee to commit to going 100% green in the next 36 months, right? right? Like, let's quit futzing around. Like, let's green three or four American cities, show everybody, show all the institutional investors, show the union, show the government, show everybody how to do this, like at scale, now that right. we think we've figured out how to do it. And then we have seven years left on a climate time frame for all the other cities across the country to use the case studies and duplicate it. So that's that's really what we're working on. So yeah, we you know we got a couple hundred projects going on, but I spent a lot of my time talking to uh, chief sustainability officers and utility companies around who's who's going to step up to the plate and let's like knock out a whole city. Wow. Yep. Crazy. So that so that's what we're working on. So Ayana. Do you want to know what my final question to Danelle was? Uh, more about mortgage-backed securities? No, no way. <laughs> you know. Oh, um, how screwed are we? The classic how to save a planet question. And Danelle, he took a long pause before he answered. I have a question for you. 
Yeah. How, how, how screwed are we? We're fairly screwed. We have a real authentic shot. It's not like a half court shot. It's like a three pointer down. It's a corner three, the shortest three pointer of all. It's not a free throw. It's not a layup, right? It's, it's a three pointer. Like you, you need skill, you need focus to hit it. Like, but it's, it's not, it's not going to be luck. Like it's, it's within our grasp to do it. And to me, that means we are not screwed. This is within our grasp if we can get the right people to the right tables to have the right conversation and get them to focus on the right thing. And so I would, you know, I love Bill Gates and what he's doing. There's moonshots and that's great, but there's also the building by building slog of hot training and hiring an army of Americans. And I think we just got to refocus people on that opportunity. While we're doing it, we'll install electric vehicle charging stations as we go building to buildings so we can switch our transportation sector over. And so this is all doable. It's just a question of does America and our business leaders and political leaders, do we have the will? Uh And I think that we have it. Uh We have it. So so I think we're going to do this. That that is. 100% 100% my intention. And when I look my five-year-old in the face every night, like that is my intention for him. Like we're going to deliver on this come hell or high water. That was awesome. I really enjoyed talking to Donnell. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I enjoyed listening to you talk to Donnell and then interjecting. <laughs> interjecting is one of life's <laughs> unsung pleasures. It is something I should probably add to my LinkedIn skills. (laughs) How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and a Gimlet production. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. It's hosted by Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Alex Bloomberg. The reporters and producers are Rachel Waldholtz, Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Anna Ladd, and Felix Poon. Their senior producer is Lauren Silverman, and their editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Emma Munger. Additional music by Katherine Anderson and Bobby Lord. And the fact checker for this episode was Claudia Geib. Outside In is produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Justine Paradise, and Taylor Quimby. Eric Janik is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. This is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. 
You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.